Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers. Throughout September, we're focusing on new films premiering at the Toronto International Film Festival, where I work as the documentary programmer. On this episode, I interview the directors behind two films dealing with crime and justice. Later in the program, I'll talk to Steve James, whose new film is about a Chinese-American family defending themselves from prosecution. It's called Abacus Small Enough to Jail. First, I speak with Jamie Kastner, a Toronto-based filmmaker whose documentaries often bring a wry first-person approach to pop culture, like his last film, The Secret Disco Revolution. But his new film is a stylistic departure into true crime called The Skyjacker's Tale. Jamie crafts a morally ambiguous profile of an American fugitive. In 1972, Ishmael Labit was convicted for a mass shooting known as the Fountain Valley Massacre that left eight people dead in St. Croix, then part of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Twelve years later, having changed his name to Ishmael Muslim Ali, during a prison transfer, he managed to hijack a plane to Cuba, where he now lives. Jamie will explain the rest. We spoke via Skype in August when he was at a cottage in Ontario. At the heart of your film is this character, Ishmael Muslim Ali, as he's known now. Tell me who he is. Ali, as he is known, is uh, as he is known to me anyway, is one of the most wanted U.S. fugitives in Cuba right now. I'd say he's definitely in the top five out of a, an estimated list of 80. And he hijacked a plane to get there successfully after having been convicted of murdering eight people on a golf course owned by the Rockefellers. And now he's been living safely in Cuba, thanks to the lack of an effective extradition treaty with the states, since 1984. And in just the last month, in fact, the latest leg of uh, developments between, of the, in the warming of relations between the United States and Cuba uh, is that talks have begun about swapping U.S. fugitives in Cuba for American spies in the U.S. Now, getting back to the original charges against Ali of killing eight people on this golf course in in St. Croix, tell us more about that crime and what Ali's stance is on it. In September 1972, eight people were murdered in this bizarre random crime on a golf course called Fountain Valley which was owned by the Rockefellers at the time on St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And um, it happened in mid-afternoon. It was a very strange crime involving five, uh, uh, at first they thought, six masked men wearing, uh, you know, balaclavas and uh, fatigues and carrying a whole range of weapons from a machine gun to, to, to pistols and so on. And eight people were killed and another eight or so were injured in what was apparently a robbery gone wrong in which less than $1,000 was taken from the till. Now, this was, you know, an American colony, for lack of a better word, and of the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, it had been bought by the U.S. Virgin Islands, were bought by um, the U.S. from Denmark in 1925. The, the island was was in transition from from a kind of more more typical sort of sugarcane based uh, Caribbean economy 
slave economy, let's call it, to uh, to a tourism-based economy. At least that's what people like the Rockefellers were were hoping. What can you set up for us for people before they see this film about what Ali's stance is about these accusations? I should just mention one more thing about the crime. It is it's a very bizarre crime because so little was taken. Also, the the victims were were both white and black. And and the white people uh, who who were killed, uh, I mean, the majority were were white, were just kind of middle brow tourists, you know, pilots and flight attendants and their and their wives having a burger. It, it wasn't a, a super fancy place. I mean, it might have been relative to to the poor people on the island. But uh, just to just to throw that into the mix, because at different times, this has been painted as as a racial crime or or also all sorts of things, uh, part of a class war. And it's definitely a bizarre crime. Ali has always denied having participated in this crime in any way. Nevertheless, he and four other co-defendants, five in total, were convicted of the murders and were sentenced to eight consecutive life sentences plus 90 years. He served 12 of those years, mainly in a series of very hardcore maximum security prisons on the mainland U.S., which is relevant because uh, uh, he and others say that these, uh, these defendants had become too much of a kind of cause célèbre. The trial had become uh, almost OJ-like in the way that it was, you know, it featured the most famous lawyers in America at the time. It had come down to St. Croix to defend them. And in spite of all sorts of controversial things that came up in the trial, they, they you know, had the book thrown at them several times over. So it seemed part of the kind of judicial strategy to get them off the island where they were in becoming increasingly sort of popular figures who who seemed to represent the lot of a lot of the local poor black population and uh, and and get them as far away as possible serving their time. Prominent on Ali's legal team was the radical American lawyer William Kunstler, known for defending the Chicago 7, the Black Panthers, and the American Indian Movement. The defense team also included Margaret Ratner and her then-husband Michael Ratner. In this clip from The Skyjacker's Tale, Margaret and Michael Ratner each described the mood in St. Croix. It was a case where the intimidation level was so high that they really needed to bring somebody from a different part of the, the country in because the fear was that the control, the way they control everything else there, would, would infect the trial. I mean, if you have somebody who, you know, is the, the community wants to hang, um, Bill is the person you want. It was apparent that it was going to be a very difficult environment to function in. The white population used to make scenes and uh, make scenes in restaurants if we dared to go into a restaurant. It was difficult to find a place to stay uh, because there were so many bomb threats. As a footnote, I should mention that Margaret Ratner later went on to marry William Kunstler. But on this case, their formidable defense skills couldn't succeed in freeing Ali. He, so over his 12 years in prison, he's a very bright guy, very funny guy as well. And he, um, he became a kind of jailhouse lawyer. And after Kunstler and the others, you know, eventually their, their, their appeals ran their course and, and uh, they moved on to other things. Ali became a kind of a, a jailhouse lawyer, as I say, and, and was 
and launched several appeals on his own. Uh, one of which was successful, not completely successful, but anyway, successful in getting him back to the Virgin Islands twice for a couple of um, a couple of hearings. And on the second one of these, when he realized that while he may have won the battle uh, in terms of this one point he was appealing, but not the war, which to him was to to be returned to the Virgin Islands to serve his time there. Uh, amongst his friends and family where he had a base of support and he felt he could uh, uh, establish his innocence and walk out a free man. Uh, Since they seemed dead set against giving him that opportunity and were sending him back to the mainland for, in effect, a a third time, it was on that flight on New Year's Eve 1984 that he he hijacked the plane. Now, how did you, as a filmmaker based in Toronto, come to this story? Um, I came to the story in the most random and wonderful way. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago after my, my last film, uh, Secret Disco, had done the rounds and then one was back as successful as it was, one was kind of back at square one, the, the joys of one-off uh, doc making, as you know all too well. Um, and I was just thinking, God, if I'm going to plunge into this all again, uh, you know, look at the, the films that are really making a splash at the time. It was like Searching for Sugar Man or Man on Wire, these incredible stories that usually had uh, a trove of found stock footage uh, to boot. They had incredible, almost Hollywood-like uh, third acts. And I, but you just think you can't go, where do you go looking for, for a man on wire or searching for Sugar Man. Well, um, feeling ambivalent as I, as I was about the, the business of one-off docs, I was attempting uh, dutifully to sell out and try to get a factual series going. And um, I uh, uh, drive this really impractical 30-year-old car. And, of course, this necessitated forming a relationship with a good mechanic. Uh, so in order to pay for the car bills, I was trying to do a factual series called The Car Whisperer because uh, this guy was quite an articulate and he is sort of an intellectual, the mechanic. Uh, anyway, the car series went nowhere. However, this kind of politically minded mechanic said, you do documentaries, don't you? I've got this buddy who uh, goes to Cuba and uh, he, uh, he kind of met this guy in a bar. It was the proverbial met the guy in a bar uh, story um, <laughs> that you hear all the time, and and you know ninety nine times out of a th- you know, out of hundred you you um, ignore. But this was we we looked him up on online in the mechanics shop and and saw that indeed all sorts of conflicting stuff about him being this murderer and hijacking this plane and uh, a few things saying he was he was kind of a, a black power hero. And anyway, I was I was certainly intrigued. I, I sent uh, some of my previous films, not that they were apropos in any way, incidentally, uh, and a letter uh, via this this friend, this Canadian friend down to Cuba. Next thing you know, I was getting texts um, saying things like, Mr. Kestner, you the man. I got good vibes about you. Now, I was internet dating at the time, and I was wondering, is this, you know, some contact I had forgotten about? Anyway, I realized... <laughs> It was uh, it was a Cuban number, and uh, let's a week later I was on a plane reading this kind of vanity published twenty uh, year old book about the trial, and figuring I was going to uh, meet a mass murderer.
he is a very charming character and a bright guy. And he began to make a case that was quite different about the original crime. I, I couldn't figure out why a guy who, who seemed like such a bright, politically-minded person would have been involved in this, in this bizarre crime. And I, I asked him why and what happened, or, or kind of like tiptoed towards the topic. He's quite a big guy, even well into his 60s. The likes of me would not want to cross him. Um, and uh, he, as I mentioned earlier, he... He uh, said he had nothing to do with the crime and and told quite a different story. And it was the beginning of my understanding of the the many conflicting viewpoints at play in this in this uh, story which which um, would be so interesting and challenging to uh, to turn into a film. Now, I want to ask you about the, the the tone of the film because here you've got this charismatic person telling his version of the story. And, you know, elsewhere in the world, there are families of eight victims who, you know, this must be one of the great tragedies of their life. How do you balance those two different points of view? Not only was the Fountain Valley Massacre a tragedy for the victims, to this day, people on St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, uh, say that this was the worst crime that ever happened on the island and that it completely ruined tourism. Now... There are many sides to every story, including those claims. But there's nobody is debating that this massacre was was a terrible event, and it, and I doubt that it helped tourism on the island. Uh, so, it was a really interesting uh, uh, challenge to balance these divergent accounts of of what happened. And early on, you know, sometimes uh, uh, you come to, sometimes you struggle to the very end to find uh, the title of a film. Sometimes it comes to you early. This one came to me quite early in the development stage as I was trying to lay out uh, from this many tentacled uh, uh, tale, you know, what, what the story would be. And the word tale came to me early and it seemed useful because it would, it, it suggests, you know, like in, um, uh, uh, oh, of course I forgot in the Canterbury tales or, or whatever, that there are many tales. It suggests we're going to hear primarily one guy's version of, of these events. And, uh, um, we're not pretending that that is objective truth. I prefer stories that are more, um, ambiguous and and i thought that i i began to realize how the diametrically opposed versions of events could could form could could be to the narrative strength you know you'd have the audience the audience would become kind of like the jury at a trial and and i would try to give each side as much as possible uh, a a fair a fair shake at at telling their tale and uh, um, and that way, you would the audience would 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 be deciding it at every stage about events big and small along the way, and the ultimate question of guilt in the film. The Skyjacker's Tale, directed by Jamie Kastner, will have its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival this week. We'll be back in a minute talking to Steve James about his new film on a white-collar crime in New York's Chinatown. I hope you'll take time to hear earlier episodes of Pure Nonfiction. 
If you have an appetite for crime stories, check out our episode about making a murderer. I interviewed the filmmakers Moira Demos and Laura Ricciardi. That conversation also includes the Wisconsin defense attorney, Stephen Glynn, who's featured in the series. The single best change that could be made in the American criminal justice system is to change one word, and that is, on a jury verdict, no longer have it say guilty or not guilty, have it say proven or not proven. Because that is what our system's about, and juries who understand that acquit when they, when they have questions. And juries, juries who don't convict, even when they shouldn't. You can hear more about Making a Murderer on Episode 3 of Pure Nonfiction. Subscribe for free on iTunes or go to purenonfiction.net. The filmmaker Steve James has a distinguished documentary career that includes films like Hoop Dreams about high school basketball players, The Interrupters about an anti-violence program, and Life Itself about the film critic Roger Ebert. All those films were set in Chicago, where Steve has lived for decades, But his latest film is set in New York's Chinatown. At the center is a Chinese-American lawyer named Thomas Sun, who was inspired by the film It's a Wonderful Life and started his own bank in Chinatown called Abacus. In this clip, Thomas Sun is re-watching It's a Wonderful Life. I owe everything to George Bailey. Help him, dear father. First time I saw It's a Wonderful Life, I had tremendous respect for George Bailey, who was the main character. He did so much good for the community. Mr. and Mrs. Martini, welcome home. George was lending money to the community resident to buy houses. Me, Giuseppe Martini, I own my own house. And that's exactly the same purpose that, that when we started the bank, it was our motivation to help a lot of people, a lot of immigrants. After the 2008 financial crisis, banks were under tighter scrutiny for mortgage fraud. But Abacus was the only bank prosecuted by Manhattan DA Cyrus Vance Jr. In Abacus Small Enough to Jail, we follow Thomas' son, his wife, and grown daughters as they fight to save the bank and their family's reputation. Here's Mrs. Son in the film. Cyrus Vance just felt this is easier to attack, especially as a family bank. But he doesn't realize Tom is not easy to be pushed around. And my girls, they're tough, smart, capable women, so courageous. I reached Steve James in Chicago by Skype and asked what drew him into this story. I mean, I think one of the things that makes this story so distinctive and important is that, um, you know, in the years following the 2008 mortgage crisis, there was there was a lot of anger out there in the world and uh, you know across the country that the big banks got away with um, fines, no criminal prosecution, and actually with bailouts, you know, the whole idea that they were too big to fail. And so what makes this story so compelling and interesting is, is that Abacus is the only U.S. bank in the wake of that crisis to have been criminally indicted as a bank. And, of course, it's a story that virtually no one knows about, even even well-read New Yorkers, because uh, the story was covered at, at when the indictments happened and when the uh, 
the indicted employees who were chained together and paraded before the media. There was a story in the New York Times and some of the other places. Uh, and then when the decision was made, you know, when the verdict came down, you know, literally th uh, three years later, um, there was some coverage. But in between, only the Chinese press in New York City really covered this story. I've lived in New York for more than 20 years. I'd never heard of Abacus Bank before. Where did this bank come from? Well, the bank was started by Thomas Sung back in the, in the mid-'80s. Uh, he was a successful lawyer, uh, but yet you know, he had this experience of, of going to his bank in Chinatown with the idea of, of um, getting a mortgage. And he discovered that uh, while the banks in Chinatown at that time were willing to have his money as a depositor, when it came to wanting to get a loan, that was a different matter. And this, you know, this was a successful man. You know, he didn't need to start a bank to make a, a living, but he was just really struck by that and decided that what he thought the community needed more than anything was a bank that would uh, truly serve the, the Chinese community there. And that was the inspiration to start the bank. Now, you're a Chicago guy. The <laughs> main the films that you're mostly known for are like Hoop Dreams and The Interrupters and Life Itself, uh, very Chicago-rooted stories. What drew you to this New York Chinatown story? Well, you know, as you know, Tom, many New York filmmakers are always going out to other cities around the country, Chicago included, and, and making documentaries, which, you know, it, it irritates me a little bit when they come into my town. So I just thought, well, you know, it's time for me to go into New York and make a film. <laughs> uh, that really was my entire motivation in doing this film. No, that's a, that's a joke. Uh, I... <laughs> I, you know, what drew me to the story was, uh, frankly, was um, the producer on the film, Mark Mitten, one of the producers, along with Julie Goldman. Mark knew one of the Sung daughters who worked at the bank and had been in touch with her. And, and she had told him you know, at one point about this incredible ordeal they were going through. Uh, and he, you know, when he looked into it, he thought, this is a very interesting story. And so Mark <clears throat> worked with me on Life Itself. He was an executive producer and a co-producer on Life Itself. And I've known Mark for several years now. And he came to me and he said, I think there's this really compelling and interesting story, important story going on in New York that no, no, nobody knows about. And that was the impetus for me to want to get involved. So you mentioned one of Thomas Sun's daughters. We should take a minute to describe this family because you really get inside this family and they're totally delightful people to spend time with. Thomas Sun has a wife and four daughters. So Thomas Sun, who started the bank, and, and eventually his daughters, Jill and Vera, um, uh, decided that they wanted to work in the bank themselves. Vera, at one time, was a lawyer. She was actually a prosecutor in Brooklyn <laughs> for a while. And Chanterelle, a uh, third sister, uh, was the one sister who was working in uh, District Attorney Cyrus Vance's office as an associate, you know, assistant DA, uh, at the time that these charges were brought, and you know, she of course was was shocked and just couldn't believe that this was all happening, and eventually left the DA's office, of course, and 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 joined in the fight, um, you know, that the family was going through. And then there's a fourth sister, Heather, who is a physician. So yeah, and then of course, you know, Thomas Sung's wife. 
I mean, Mrs. Song is, is in some ways, she kind of steals the movie, you might say. She is, she is uh, strident and humorous and passionate. And um, you really do get inside the, the experience of this family. And, and they, are, they are, as you said, they're, they're, they're quite wonderful to, to get to know. The, the humor in that family was an unexpected quality for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and for, for us, too, you know, when you hear about what this story's about, uh, you, you know, you imagine, you know, if Hollywood were to do this film and or do this story and who knows, maybe someday they will. You would imagine that it would be this um, purely dramatic and inspirational kind of fight on the that this family goes through to try to save their bank. You wouldn't imagine that it could also be a comedy, um, and and I think that that's yeah, that really is one of the things that that really struck us about it, and it's one of the reasons, frankly, you know, I love making documentaries so much is is that you meet people in situations, and they always surprise you. There's always humor in unexpected situations because that's the way in which people often cope with with the the, the difficulties of that they're going through. So you begin filming this process uh, mid-trial or, or over the course of the multi-year um, uh, uh, process that this was dragging out. Yeah, we, we started filming during the trial itself we, we were, we, is when we were able to start filming. We weren't able to get in the courtroom. Um, it's interesting because the judge seemed open to it. Um, but it's it's one of those decisions for this level of trial in New York um, where both the prosecution and the defense have to agree to it as well or you can't have cameras in the courtroom. So we weren't we weren't able to get in the courtroom. But we did have this amazing courtroom illustrator, uh, Christine Cornell, who uh, who has done a lot of big trials over the years. <laughs> we We got her to go to the trial for a number of days to do illustrations that became the basis for how we were able to visualize the the trial itself. So uh, ultimately, it was the prosecutors who vetoed your presence in the courtroom. Well, you know, it's interesting. The prosecutors definitely vetoed it, but also the defense lawyers, the defense lawyers were were, um, Oh, I don't know. They, they, you know, they're lawyers, and and the the idea of of having their uh, performance in the courtroom uh, be filmed d- d- didn't appeal to them either. <laughs> so, so you know, the family was open to it, but but we could not get either the prosecution or the defense to to approve it. But really, if just one of them said no, then we were shot down for that. You do manage to get interviews with Cyrus Vance, the, the DA, and other people on the prosecution team. Uh, wh- what was that like? We really had to pursue them. I mean, they didn't immediately say yes. We actually tried to get access to uh, Cyrus Vance Jr. And, and anyone with the DA's office during the course of the trial and had no luck with that. Um, but uh, in the aftermath of the trial, you know, I have to give great credit to one of our co-producers, Nick Berbitsky, who, who is just was very dogged about about that pursuit, and and managed to convince both Cyrus Vance and Polly Greenberg, who was at the time of the trial head of the Economics Crime Unit in the DA's office, so so was an overseer in this case, convince them to come forward and and be interviewed uh, for the film. You know, and, and I think it's a really important that we we have their voices in there, and that we we really did endeavor to uh, allow them to be fully heard on on their side of the case and what they felt was important and why they brought the case. 
you know, I think too often documentaries settle for one side of a story and in part because it's often hard to get the other side, but also because they have a more activist orientation and, you know, sometimes they're not interested in the other side. And that was not the case here. We were very interested to, to try to try to fully represent this case and represent what it meant to all parties. I feel like this, uh, the, the, the structure of, of this story digging into a trial uh, and a white collar crime is is a little bit different than um, than other kinds of films you've made. Did it feel that way? Yeah, <laughs> very much. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, look, I, I I like to do different kinds of films. I mean, you know, life itself does not look like the Interrupters. Um, I've done other films that that you know that that um, are more archivally driven, um, uh, more interview driven. Uh, but, you know, I think a lot of the work that, that I've done that, that people are most familiar with, uh, you know, films like Hoop Dreams and Interrupters are films that are, that are much more sort of verite driven. Uh, you know, we have lots of great verite moments in this film, but, but we also had to go about really telling the story of this trial. And, and it's interesting because when, Tom, when we went to shoot in the courtroom to get our courtroom shots, uh, we, you know, we had to hire court officers to be with us during our shoot it was over the weekend and uh so one of the court officers when we were coming <laughs> to shoot he goes so what what trial was this that you guys are making a film about and when i told him the trial he goes abacus abacus he goes oh 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 that was just a paper trial and i went well, what do you mean by that he goes you know fraud case paper you know basically meant boring um you know it wasn't murder it wasn't it wasn't some outrageous, crazy, you know, story situation that, um, you know, that, that typically you would look to make a movie about. <laughs> um, I mean, this, this is a very different kind of trial than you even typically see, I think, in, in most documentaries, let alone my documentaries. And, and, and that became a kind of really interesting challenge, I think, for us that we relished, um, was how to bring to life a trial such as this, where you're not talking about Bank of America and billions of dollars in, in alleged fraud. You're talking about a small community bank with, you know, fairly chump change level of fraud going on. And yet uh, there are real stakes uh, in this case. Uh, and I mean, I wonder if you can, you know, describe, you know, what is at stake for the Sun family in this case? If they are found guilty, um, they run uh, a very serious risk of the bank going out of business. And not only uh, if the bank goes out of business, is that you know bad for them as a family because it's their enterprise, their livelihood. It's, you know, it's, it's bad for the community uh, of Chinatown community of which they have been such an integral part all these years. And then, you know, what's also at stake is, um, their sense of of right and wrong for themselves and pride, um, as as uh, Mrs. Sung says at one point, talks about the loss of face um, uh, if they're found guilty. So it's it's you know it's deeply important for them on so many levels. And then from our point of view, there are also these even greater stakes about questions about justice in America and about um, who you know, who gets justice in America and, and who goes on trial in America. And that takes us back to the, the kind of larger questions about the big banks versus a small community bank in Chinatown. 
Steve James's film, Abacus Small Enough to Jail, will make its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival this week. Here's a bit of the film's music composed by Joshua Abrams. I want to thank both Jamie Kastner and Steve James for giving us a preview of their films. Normally, Pure Nonfiction releases a new show every Thursday, but while the Toronto International Film Festival is happening, we'll have a Friday bonus. Tomorrow, on episode 20, I speak with two women directors at TIFF. The film Girl Unbound follows the Pakistani squash player Maria Torpakai Wazir. She grew up in Waziristan and received fundamentalist death threats for playing sports. Director Aaron Heidenreich follows Maria on a risky journey. You know, when you're making these choices to put yourself and potentially your family's lives on the line, does your family support you? You know, you know in Maria's case, like, they completely support her. Like, how far do you go to test these limits? I also speak with Petra Epperlein, who grew up in East Germany. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, Petra's father committed suicide, and she began to wonder if he had been involved with the Stasi secret police. Her new film, Karl Marx City, delves into that family mystery. There were many open questions, and so after many years, we decided to, to face the truth and um, request his files and our own files in the Stasi archive. You can hear my interviews with Aaron Heidenreich and Petra Epperlein coming up on episode 20. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, web designer Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator Sarah Modo, social media handlers Jordan Smith, Alana Schreiber, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at THOM Powers. If you like what you've heard, the best way to support us is to subscribe on iTunes. And please spread the word to your friends. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.